0: I want you to see that I I redid the turtle. Oh, God bless you. Um, so it's not. It's a friendly
1: turtle. It's oh, not oh perfect. thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That makes a difference. Um, but thank so, you.
0: So, so if you're talking too fast, thank I'm just you. gonna wave this at you, and it's just a beautiful turtle. It's just a beautiful turtle. It's a it's a friendly turtle, reminding you to talk more slowly.
1: You know, as I think of turtles, I think of um, oh, it's some 19th century like french quote-unquote decadent author yeah. is it nerval or well, i don't know what you're
0: going to say
1: yet uh well it's about turtles and, oh, okay. and, and it's it's this first person novel about a guy who's like going to build an, a house that he never leaves and, and among his sort of decadent affectations is he has a turtle like a galapagos style turtle
0: that's a tortoise
1: okay a tort, a galapagos style turtle i i don't recall what okay, you know sorry it, no it's, it's okay Apparently I, I know I, more
0: than i thought about
1: the tortoise yeah slash you're already
0: tortoise, uh,
1: universe. Well I, I do know that the, that the idea that this guy has is that he's gonna gild the tortoise's shell oh. and then the tortoise is going to be like a, a table that will bring him like his uh, you know his absinthe bar or like a, a water pipe full of hashish or something, which is it's kind of awesome.
0: I thought you were going to say once you went with like decadent and turtle, there's a bit in Benjamin's The Arcades Project. I think it's The Arcades Project where he's like the the Flennar in, oh God, I don't remember what year it is, like would take, would take elegantly, take an elegant turtle for a walk or elegantly take a turtle for a walk.
1: I think this may be referring to some of the same phenomenon. Like- is it
0: one French guy and his turtle? It's probably
1: some fucker associated with Baudelaire or something about yeah, that. Yeah, there's. sure.
0: I can't remember what, but I just I like the idea. And maybe that was a tortoise also. I mean, isn't We're the deal really with turtles displaying the limits of our of our knowledge about French turtles? Listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Colgin.
1: I'm Patrick Blanchfield.
0: We are going to be doing something a little bit different today. Um, just switching things up. I asked Patrick if I could interview him today, and specifically on the topic of psychoanalysis and politics, because for me, my, my primary inclination in studying and thinking about psychoanalysis has generally been partly because I'm a philosophy nerd, like thinking about conceptions of the self um, conceptions of subjectivity, um, the formation of the self, and also thinking about um, interpersonal structures, family structures, um, less so social and cultural structures. Um, And in some ways this kind of maps on to Freud, um, whose early work, you know, really proceeds from clinical observation. And then later on, when you get to some of the texts um, that I think we're gonna talk about today, like Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Future of an Illusion, Civilization and Its Discontents. When we get to the, the 1920s and 1930s, you get Freud taking, you know, this, this edifice. Or field or whatever I'm mixing my metaphors already. Like (laughs) it's still the top of the show, but uh, you know, you see him say like, "Okay, let's put culture on the couch." Um, And it seems to me that Patrick, that is something that your work is is really invested in that sort of latter Freudian project. Um, And so, I wanted to ask you some questions today about what motivates that project, how you think about psychoanalysis and politics, um, and what we all can can take from that um, in terms of a sort of... Actually, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to predestine the conversation. Are you in?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in for it. And I know people on uh, the Discord and Patreon have wanted to lean into some political stuff or to sort of thematize that explicitly. So I'm particularly eager to do that. And I think it, it occurred to me, too, both with an eye towards what people have been saying, and we're really grateful for the feedback, but also just to, to speak to, like, not so much my own, like, intellectual biography or autobiography, because I don't really find that—I actually kind of really don't like talking about myself, but but uh, but more about, like, trying to encourage other people to think in terms of psychoanalysis and politics or to see what psychoanalysis may have to bear in politics— mm-hmm. Like, my confession up front is that I, I first started thinking about psychoanalysis in politics because of all people, and this is probably not unsurprising, fucking Slavoj Zizek, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I can share some—I have some Zizek stories, which I'm going to save for— that's, that's a
0: Patreon That's episode.
1: a wild—yeah, I've, 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 I've encountered Zizek at numerous points in my life. He's a recurring figure, uh, and the stories are, are are fairly gonzo, but that's, that's Patreon I'll, content. I'll just yeah. tell you
0: really quickly that once we were at lunch um, in New York and Patrick ran—we saw Zizek— um and patrick ran out and was like hey remember me and then you got him to agree to try to take a picture of the back of your heads it was amazing anyway i have i have photos
1: yeah and and i do a solid zizek impression again that's Patreon stuff only (laughs) i uh and and the story that i'll tease here is is that i do have a copy of a koiné greek bible signed by slavo zizek so that's that's a story that's um
0: we've brought it from apartment to apartment (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know if it's it's gain in value or lost value or if like if I should make it into an NFT or anything. But like the reason I'm telling all this though is like, I I think that the, the initial way for me to think about psychoanalysis politics or the idea that psychoanalysis would be politically relevant came from like coming across Zizek, right? Yeah. In, in the early 2000s. And also coming across like that was like a segue into like encountering Lacan into sort of these you know Zizek's kind of classic readings of workaday objects or social conventions in light of these kind of stunning or at times like dizzying uh, analogies or invocations of Hegel and Lenin and Lacan etc and I think and this is why I'm telling this sort of personal story is that at a certain point and, and that's after a certain point, I mean, after years and years of of, of reading tons of Lacan and, and, and teaching Lacan at all sorts of levels and, you know, to clinicians and, and to undergraduate and graduates or whatever, but like also reading a lot of the Shijek stuff, I think I realized that I had made the mistake of thinking that just because Lacan was the most complicated and the one that most people would use to talk about politics, at least in the circles I was traveling, that it was necessarily the most important or the yeah. the only way to think about politics, right? Or, and that there was, in fact, a kind of, I'd fallen into a kind of trap where, like, I just because things were difficult and complicated and used a ton of uh, jargon and seemed to generate these kind of paradoxical, like, epigrams or like these sort of zany readings. That, and then even just because this stuff was the most complicated, the most showy, it had to be the most accurate and the yeah. most true and the only way of thinking about things and
0: the most esoteric, right? Yeah. I think that has a hold on a certain type of, of intellectual or academic. Yeah. And I, or scholar.
1: Yeah. And I, I should say too, that like that may be something that tracks with probably like, you know, being raised in Catholicism, right. And, or like doing things in translation or just thinking about like the idea that somehow the stuff that's the most idiosyncratic um, paradoxical, and that requires the most like investment of time and energy to unpack and must necessarily be like the good shit.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And, you know, I, I think you're about how like in, 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 the Jewish mystical tradition, like you're warned against studying Kabbalah before the age of 35. Cause like it's 40. It's okay. Yeah. There's okay. You got to master
0: a whole lot of other things first.
1: Right. Cause you go off the deep end. If you do it, if you start with that, right. It's, it's too, it's, it's high level stuff and, and you can lose it. And I think I, for me, what really brought me back to, uh, to thinking about politics from a psychoanalytic perspective, but not necessarily having to like get involved in really, uh, high-level language games, and I should say, you know, nothing but respect for my, for the Lacanians who were, like, listening to this, was actually encountering, um, doing clinical training and encountering stories of people actually living uh, in a variety of subject positions and struggling with all sorts of um, issues that had to do with race, gender, and class, right? And between that and, like, going back and reading Freud, um, like, returning to Freud without without doing it through Lacan, really opened up some stuff for me. And maybe, like, okay, you can actually use some of these concepts or deploy this orientation without having to, you know, do the stuff that like my brain, like for example, just can't do like mm-hmm. proclaim like something as the obverse of the inverse of the reverse, which is precisely the principle that guarantees the possibility of the XYZ <laughs> vehicle, right? You don't need to do that type of stuff. There are actually much more um, ready at hand. And I think very profound ways to use psychoanalysis uh, that don't require that. And so that's kind of where I, what I hope to sort of bring to bear here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So let's get into it. Um, let me ask you a, I don't know, maybe deliberately naive question. Um, is there, in your view, is there an inherent or maybe an implicit politics in psychoanalysis itself as as a field or a discipline or however you want to categorize it?
1: Yeah. I, I don't, as much as I would like to say that the answer is, is absolutely yes, I think it's the answer is is definitely no, right? Um or rather, like maybe that's we
0: dialectics. dialectic. Sorry, you yeah. You cut that out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean sorry. No, it it, it it is this thing where it's like on the one hand, yes, if you historicize the Freudian intervention, you can see it emerging uh in distinction in contradistinction to a bunch of other intellectual currents that are happening in Late, late 19th century Europe uh, and in over the course of the early 20th century, above all in reaction to uh, emergent fascist populisms, if you want to use that type of language. Right. Uh, and I suppose you could also say that there is a, a certain impulse of orientation towards other people and towards like what you could, I guess, call the dignity of internal mental life by simply proposing therapy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, By let's talk to you about your problems. Your problems are salient. They matter. You matter, therefore. Uh, And also, too, you know, last week, and this is a theme for the previous two Uncanny episodes, we talked a bunch about how you can, if you want to, you can situate Freud as a anti-Enlightenment thinker or a thinker who points to certain limits of the Enlightenment. So to the extent to which you can see in that initial sort of body of knowledge that comes from, from Sigmund Freud you can make various claims about certain recurrent preoccupations or political uses, which he seemed to want to put this towards. Right. Um, But also, and this is something that I think can't be repeated enough. Like there have, as we talked about in our first episode, there have been tons of different, I mean, there have been lots of psychoanalysts. There have been lots of psychoanalytic movements. There have been lots of schools of psychoanalysis. And uh, the politics of the figures involved of those institutions or of the uses of, that other institutions have put psychoanalysis to are not, don't easily resolve into any particular political orientation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and in fact, I cover all four of the quadrants if you want to invoke that kind of like classic, like political meme sort of thing where it's like the different ideological dispositions. But I, I should say here, like, to be granular about this, right? In the first generation of psychoanalysis that is before or going into the first world war, you have psychoanalysts who train under Freud or who are associated with the psychoanalytic movement who uh, draw heavily on and maybe even kind of reciprocally influence traditions that we would call anarchist, Mm -hmm. right? There are definitely, uh, Otto Gross is one of these major major figures, right? That comes to mind and who may even have gotten some of his ideas about like mutual analysis and anti-authoritarian analysis uh, via like Kropotkin's idea of, of uh, mutual aid. Right. So, so there's right, right, right off the bat, you have people who are antinomian and aggressively uh, who take Freud's lessons or take Freud's at, at uh, calling attention to the role, particularly the father and a patriarchy to argue, basically, we should kill Kings, dethrone the father, etc. cetera. Yeah. So this is a, you know, an early, an early 20th century anarchism. By the same token uh, you have figures within this sort of first generation of of psychoanalysis, but even going into the 20s, who will use psychoanalysis for Marxist purposes or who will develop an explicitly psychoanalytic Marxism. Um, And these include figures like Otto Fenichel, at least in his early beginnings, uh, and, Wilhelm Reich and other people, right? But also, too, there are absolutely right-wing slash conservative slash you might even say authoritarian versions of psychoanalysis, right? And I think... You know, uh, Carl Jung represents a particularly obvious example of a a thinker who's, you know, I think we can, I'd like to to do an interview with some people who do Jung scholarship to sort of talk more about this. But you can read the the Jungian corpus and there's stuff in there if it's explicitly uses psychoanalytic concepts to talk about like the Aryan race or the unique capacities of Hitler as a leader or just like outright, you know, foaming at the mouth, anti-Semitism. Like it's just there. Mm And you know, subsequently, you could track the history of psychoanalysis across different borders or in different countries or traditions, and you can find you know thinkers who use psychoanalysis for very uh, conservative, even reactionary modes. I think you of Christopher Lash in the U.S. or hell, sure. we could even go back to Zizek, right? Like, I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah, where he's landing?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure where he was like 20 years ago. In some ways, like he was in this kind of leftist contrarian mode. But at this point, like, I think he does, he fucks with some turfy stuff, right? Is my understanding right? So again, like. That's all to say that at one if you were to put any one of those people in like uh, in a tribunal or on the couch, I guess <laughs> writer, uh <laughs> they would probably profess that theirs is the truest reading of Freud, that theirs is the most rigorous psychoanalytic inspired criticism, et cetera right and and hell, I mean, fuck, like like there are some this produces some zany and weird things, right? Like one of the things that happens particularly in. Uh, in the history of, of psychoanalysis in Germany is that the uh, the Nazis attempt to produce a psychoanalysis uh, that is tethered towards rejuvenating and c- correcting the supposed uh, flaws, both of psychoanalysis, which they frame as a, an anti-Aryan sort of like, quote unquote, Jewish science. And they mean that in the worst possible way. Um, and also to like correcting the flaws, which have prevented the Wonderful Aryan family from realizing its full potential, right? And so what this produces, in addition to a, a purged Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute where people are literally sent to the camps, um, is a situation where people are practicing what they call psychoanalysis, but it is a thoroughly Nazified psychoanalysis. And uh, even then, though, they have to have some sort of relationship to Freud. And so they keep, they keep the standard edition of Freud in a locked case hidden inside the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute. Yeah, you have to have a special key to get in there. Um, So, like, again, all this is basically to say that that the, if we take psychoanalysis more broadly and kind of ecumenically as involving an orientation towards uh, unconscious life, as having a therapeutic praxis, as having applications on uh, culture and et cetera, you know, that kind of tripartite model we we spun out in our, our first couple episodes, that doesn't necessarily have a, given political teleology, right? And even just on the level of being like, well, that what seems to be the most broad brush redemptive gesture, namely turning towards individual suffering, like, sure, that's something that we could see as having an an ethos of care, et cetera, but there's nothing saying that that attunement towards individual suffering or to an individual's experience has to, be open to everyone. And in fact, you could have, as the Nazis did, like, we're just going to care, we're, we're going to deal with the neuroses of, you know, SS intellectuals, right? Or we're going to deal with the problems of the Aryan worker, or we're going to, and this is a critique that's man, that's leveraged against a lot of capitalists or like uh, psychoanalysts who are operating and very successful in a mid-century capitalist environment, and, you know, in, in the US or the UK, where there's a the critique that's often made is that they're just basically making people more adaptive to work within a particular capitalist workplace, right? They're reinscribing the family. And so like, again, like all this is to basically say that like the ethos of care or the attunement to these issues, these preoccupations mm-hmm. can come with massive riders mm-hmm. about like, well, what's the social order that we are going to take as given? What are the symptoms that we're not going to dignify as being problems or even just most basically who gets whose symptoms get to matter like who gets yeah. to have an interior life that we mm-hmm. care about yeah and that's not given in any of this so i think that's something that you know it's on the one yeah on the one hand it's 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 an it's an mm-hmm. we can use someone else's for all sorts of things but on the other hand if we think that necessarily that commits us to a particular program I mean, there are plenty of psychoanalysts with whom I disagree profoundly in the sure. present moment about their politics, so like I think we should we should be honest about that,
0: yeah that's 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 fair, so okay, in terms of to turning i mean, I suppose like um, from the past to the present for for a moment, why is psychoanalysis such an important part of your theoretical toolkit for understanding contemporary American politics, which you do, I would say in a specifically leftist mode. I mean, you can contest that if you want.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, no, I'll, I'll take it. Um, I mean, so, like, I think, think I can think of a bunch of reasons why I think psychoanalysis is helpful both for me or for other people. And, again, I, I'll say, like, a lot of the things I'm going to be saying here, like, are, or, or hell, let I me mean, let me put, let me say something even more sort of up front. Like, I may be reaching, and you may hear me in my position with my left-wing political commitments, like, use the right as an example for many things, right? Um, and i hope we get to talk about that but but i should be very clear that like the the visions of both the person that i i think are kind of core to uh the psychoanalytic enterprise but also like the ideas of group behavior mm-hmm. and of social formations and of social symptoms um those accounts are only good insofar as they can cut in multiple directions and they do cut brutally in multiple directions right so that's right uh, a lot of the things that i'm gonna invoke in the way of like my own psychoanalytic insights into or like so to speak or like my own like political critiques of the right are that's not exclusive or incompatible with my saying that we can't also turn that lens back oftentimes quite brutally on say like left liberals or mm-hmm. hell like like quote unquote far left figures or or even just sort of the ways that we can see for the political as such like that's like the, the first thing I kind of want to say like so mm-hmm. so uh
0: so stipulated
1: <laughs> yeah and, and so and it was with that in mind that like one thing that I think is useful is Sort of follows from that, namely that I think a psychoanalytic perspective doesn't easily resolve into the familiar partisan divides of U.S. politics, right? Um, And in fact, it it offers a way for us to think about positions that are seen as being otherwise diametrically opposed uh, to one another within a partisan political framework is actually mirroring one another or functioning in similar ways or covering similar ground. Or even basically working to produce an ongoing system, right? That is that might function the way that you know, by analogy, we might think of like I don't know, like a uh, a, re- a human relationship might work, or like a family might work, right? Or uh, and I don't want to. This is the only probably the only time I'm like I'm going to invoke music again. Maybe I'll do it one more time later. But like we could think about like old jokes about like a sadist and a masochist, right? <laughs> like coming together and yeah. uh, but. but but all that basically is to say that like, what I think tracks for me most or one of the most obvious things to say, but again, obvious things can oftentimes be the most difficult to say, mm-hmm. uh, is that some of the structures of American political discourse is is a kind of paradox. Like on the one hand, there is a ton of cel- uh, of emotionality, of the celebration of enjoyment, of pleasure. Of 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 sometimes some of those, sometimes those pleasures are like transcendent right about solidarity et cetera but, but often too their their pleasures in, um, in violence in cruelty mm-hmm. in uh, you know to use a, a contemporary rhetoric like owning people right or like serving them up or or, or enjoying the 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 being a troll yeah. right so, so a lot of American political life is saturated with pleasure with um, the demand to regulate pleasures of particular people or the expressions of joy in certain processes or outcomes or in the spectacle of someone else's suffering or or simply they're being made mad, right? A lot of politics, at least in our present moment, seem to to function, to to circle around that. But then, and here's sort of the paradox, that also coexists with a lot of disavowal of pleasure, right? And this, a lot of people who sort of think that, well, actually, no, politics are just about, Politics is actually an ongoing discussion that arrives at the best possible outcomes. It's really just a debate, or it's really about this thing that we call policy, or it's, you know, it's defined by what everyone else can disagree, what everyone else can agree on, right? We're all reasonable people here, right? These sort of gestures that, that well, and here's the a way to sort of track this. Like, on the one hand, it's about identifying with particular people. Right, and on the other hand, it can be about like identifying with the process or like doing a type of identification that's a little less clear. Mm. Right, Uh, which is all to say that like on the one hand, there's a ton of pleasure, there's a ton of owning of pleasure, but on the other hand, there's a lot of denial of pleasure, and as speaking in registers, it seemed to have nothing whatsoever to do with pleasure. And that's
0: what you mean by disavowal. Yes.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like people who are like, well, look, it's terrible how the Republicans are so cruel. For them, the cruelty is the point. But also, what else are we going to do except continue to build prisons? right like it's really terrible that the, uh, the that these kids are being put in cages under Donald Trump, and now that Joe Biden is doing it, that problem has somehow disappeared, right? In other words, that there's this kind of movement where of and this I like maybe can we can map this onto it is that on the one hand there's like a These sudden mobilizations of, or crystallizations of anger, outrage, the need to do something. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that's what, that's tethered to a, like a presentism. Like this has never happened before. Right. This is unprecedented. Right.
0: And it's always something that has happened before. Exactly. And it's not unprecedented.
1: And that's the the corollary to this. Namely that there's a ton of disavowal or deliberate foreclosure Mm -hmm. of memory Mm -hmm. and a kind of like repeated attitude of like, well, this is actually how could this possibly be us this isn't who we are etc right um and i think that that's something that we can either be like totally baffled by or we can adopt the position within you know like we can be the one saying that everything is totally new and nothing has any precedent whatsoever or we can kind of see those two positions namely of owning pleasure and disavowing pleasure um owning Or claiming novelty or unprecedentedness versus like a historical consciousness, we could actually see those things as kind of possibly relating to one another and producing something together, right? So to tie a bow on this, like one thing that becomes more and more interesting to me is the role of forgetting or the role of certain rituals of disavowal of taboos of the stuff that we call American exceptionalism. Right, I think that we can use a lot of psychoanalytic concepts to unpack our investment in those things.
0: What What do you have in mind?
1: So, so what I would ask people to do, right? And this is, a, I think, a a very like immediate, like cash value use of psychoanalytic uh, psychoanalytic orientation is to re- look at and ask yourself when you ever you encounter a political appeal or some sort of political statement or a response to a political situation to ask how is this functioning in terms of identifications, right? When someone says we, when someone uses the us, when someone constructs the idea of a people, who is meant to be included in that? Who is being excluded from that? Who is being structurally, who is, who is almost being excluded as the condition of possibility of creating that we, right? And I, this also tracks particularly and can be very visible, painfully so, when you think about how people respond to events that might seem, you know, exceptional or, or, or singly horrifying, but where they feel a need to invoke like the norms of the social order or certain types of group identifications and formations. Right. And, and what I'm thinking about here, particularly in what I've been unable to stop thinking about since it, it happened was, is the killing of, uh, of Jordan Neely on, on, I guess it was an F train. Right. Um, and just for people are, aware of when we're recording this this is a several or five days after he was killed in and he was strangled to death in you know in broad daylight albeit you know underground in the middle of the afternoon on a train and a bunch of people held him down and another person strangled this this uh uh this man and if you turn to like if you look at twitter but also if you read the comments of political and i I like twitter for this in some ways because twitter is like a kind of like it's, it's where you can see the socius or the collectivity kind of metabolizing of things. And you can almost read it as this kind of text, but you can hear this in the statement of politicians or like these statements of what seem to be what are presented as, as unquestionable rules statements like, well, for example, like passengers have a right to feel safe. New Yorkers deserve to feel safe. Right. And these are obvious, but I mean, folks, the guy heard nearly was also a passenger on that train. He was also a New Yorker. Right. So when someone says as giving it as self-evident, well, the people deserve certain things, that functions that that's both depends upon and enforces or demands an exclusion. Namely, he doesn't count.
0: You right? can see this in like I'm, I'm just thinking aloud with you that you can see this in turf rhetoric too. Women deserve to feel safe in women's bathroom. That kind of thing. Again, the construction of the category of women through the systematic exclusion of certain others.
1: Exactly. And I think that that's, you could almost see, and I think this is a, a this is, you could, you could turn to Freud for this, right? Freud's vision of what, how political groups work um, or how like social institutions work is essentially by weaving together bonds of an in-group, right? But by, by, by having people identify with one another and and that can make them do remarkable things, right? This this is Freud's in Freud's group psychology, which is different from other types of group psychology for reasons I think we we may want to get into. But but, but in his group psychology, he points to two particular institutions that he he doesn't so much like admire isn't quite the right word, but he has a a grudging acknowledgement of their durability and power.
0: Is it? It's been a while. Is it the church and the military? Yeah, it's the church and the military,
1: oh, yeah. right? And it's worth it's worth for a second thinking about this for our purposes, right? Like the church and the military, particularly he's talking about the medieval church and the modern professional army, uh, get human beings to do a whole bunch of really wild things, of things that seem very counterintuitive, right? Um, For example, you know, if you're in the military, you're going to be taught to, well, risk your life, kill another person possibly, uh, and possibly die yourself, sacrifice yourself for a cause or for your friends, right? That is not stuff if, uh, you know, whether we're contemporarily thinking in some sort of like evo-neuro-psycho-developmental thing or like what's the possible individual, like what's you, what do you get out of dying for the buddies in your squad? Like you don't get anything out of it, right, directly. Or at least you don't get anything out of it in terms of like a, you're not passing on your genes you're doing that, but people do it, right? Or if we want to look at it in terms that Freud also is very familiar with, which are namely the same terms in which uh, classical philosophers, right? <laughs> like Aristotle and Plato encounter this problem where they ask questions like, well, how exactly is the Spartan army so good? Why are they so good at killing? Right. Uh, and because, because you know, Aristotle will say something like, well, you know, like most people, when you've, most people, when they, most people have certain priorities and those priorities are with their personal pleasure and their friends. And when they fall in love, the rest of the world doesn't become that important to them. And in fact, it's very hard to get people who are in love with someone else to serve in the military. Cause why would you want to die? Like, you have a reason to be happy, you have a reason to live, you have a family, you have a lover, et cetera. And, you know, just to make a long story short, the way that, the end run that the Spartans have around this is, well, don't worry, you're going to be fucking your buddies in the army, right? So it, it's, in other words, there's like a, there's a transmutation of these bonds, of these dispositions, right? Yeah. But in the contemporary modern military, right? Like you are taught to sacrifice yourself. You are taught to kill, right? These are things that, you know, whether we're in Aristotle's era or in the present era, seem counterintuitive to us, but also constantly happen. They're both obvious, but also kind of hidden, right? The other example of the church bears on this too right because if you look at the medieval church you have people doing like really weird things right among other things they are uh, they like will retire from the life of, of 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 having families right uh they will in fact adopt an attitude of uh, aggressive mortification of hatred of their own bodies of hatred of sexual pleasure yeah they'll be ascetic they'll be ascetic they will focus on rewards in the next life rather than rewards on this one right sure. and they will produce same sex communities in which everyone's assets go to the church and are not passed on, right? So, in other words, these two institutions, the church and the army, offer examples in nutshell of what you might call social reproduction, mm. right? They, in other words, these institutions re- re- reproduce themselves, and they get people to give up their lives for them, but they don't involve any of the things that we might call or we might argue are obvious and natural about the human person right? You don't have families. You maybe don't even have sex, right? You you lean into hurting your own, you're hurting yourself or getting killed, Mm -hmm. right? These are achievements that are, they speak to the power of these groups or of these institutions to transform basic attachments or basic dispositions into fairly complicated new forms of attachment and new forms of dispositions, right? New regulations of pleasures, new modes of identifying that can do things like survive the dark ages, right? If we want to call them that. Or Shit,
0: I think we don't, well, I don't think we
1: want to. <laughs> right. Right. They're the bright ages now is my understanding, but like they are very powerful at getting people to, at reworking in these basic bonds. Yeah. Right. Because this
0: is what Freud calls substitutive satisfactions. So that's what you have in mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, like it's about, we could see this as being about, well, you give people something, someone to identify with instead of living so that you can protect your children. You will identify, you will not have kids and you will identify with the Holy Mother Church. Right. Instead of running away from a military engagement, you will go in because you want to protect your bodies. You will leap on that grenade. Right.
0: Can I, yeah. can I ask you a question? I feel like what you're saying, cause I, Okay, I know you. I'm married to you. <laughs> I, I, I've I, never heard you say anything about like what's like natural. You can't see me, but I'm air quoting like natural to human beings. So I feel like the view that you're talking about here is something like uh, things that run counter to the pleasure principle. Am I hearing that right? Um. Well, so. I mean, not, something along those lines. Not
1: quite. I think what, I, what I'm, yes. And I think to the extent to which like there's this thing that we could call the pleasure principle, which is basically like you, uh
0: avoidance of pain (laughs) yeah and and the embrace of of pleasure but in that order
1: yeah it's like a principle of like psychic parsimony or like avoiding certain types of resistance Mm -hmm. right but the other way of thinking about it it, and what i what i'm doing in some ways is is a little more uh general or even vague right is to think about how much what we could call our second nature Mm -hmm. namely the social formations that are reproducing themselves. Okay. Right? That's what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Because I, I was getting a little tripped up because I know you don't think it's like natural to to like have a family reprodu- in, in some sort of essentialized way.
1: No. And, and that's sort of the, this gets to sort of the, the point, right? Is, is that what I think a psychoanalytic perspective gives us, right, is a capacity to, for better or worse, appreciate how much the person is plastic How much social relations can be shaped or changed, but also how much of what we you could call—and here I'm invoking a tradition of anthropology, which we can get into if we want—but like how much of what we call like second nature, namely cultural achievements, things that are transmitted through social reproduction, can seem to us like just it's given. It's our it's our it's our human nature.
0: Okay, I guess I just wanted to like have you pull that out and state it.
1: Yeah, like uh, to be very clear, like I have no particular commitment to any discourse of human nature whatsoever. And generally, when people start talking about human nature, I uh, red flags go up for me. Yeah, right, because oftentimes that involves uh, precisely what we're talking about, namely group identifications and a certain type of authoring where other people go outside it. Right, outside
0: of that fundamental category of the human.
1: But I do think it's it's worth saying that, and maybe this is the basic most ecumenical way of thinking about like psychoanalytic um, political theory that comes across a lot of different schools, but that also I think you could kind of use, right? Is that you are, we are all inevitably, as a necessary matter of course, going to be taught or going to be disposed to identify with certain people, right? To identify with certain things, right? And by identify with, I mean, see ourselves as in, see the world through their eyes, see ourselves as tied to them, our very existence is being defined by it. But also more complicated formations might be stuff like you identify with someone who hurts you because that's a way of preserving your own, that's like a survival strategy, sure. right? You identify with an aggressor, maybe what you call it, right? And so to, to go back to that the point, the, the point that sort of started this, like what's the traction that this gives us vis-a-vis the American political situation and these partisan formations, which are supposedly the whole story, is that you can see how, well… For a lot of people, and no, people can occupy different positions as this as time goes on, but like a lot of people, it's about identifying with, use a Jordan Neely example. You, they are identifying with more or less explicitly the people who killed this man. They're not identifying with the man who was killed, right? But also, right, so there's that direct type of identification. I would never be able to see myself as being the person who was killed because I was having a mental health episode. Right. And and we can immediately start asking questions like, well, what's what's being what's what's underwriting that exclusion? What anxieties do we have about, about ourselves, about about the, the mind as a thing we can lose, right? Or or what racial commitments, et cetera, like are underwriting that. But also we can ask questions like, what about people whose whole whose whole role seems to be on the one hand, Disliking that type of identification, right? That's so horrible of you to think that. Like it's so it's so bad that you would you know want to want to directly kill someone yourself. Shame on you for that. But who then will identify? Well, will basically identify with the process, or will identify with an entire social order where they're like, well, you know, it's really terrible that a vigilante had to kill this guy, but they kind of had to do it, and honestly, that should be the role of. Of the police. So instead of this guy being killed by some random strap hanger, uh, he should have just been spent the rest of his life in a little hole in Rikers and you know it pains me to say that but this isn't about what I believe this is about how things actually work right And, and, and again, my father crew is saying this is identifying they're not a, they're deliberately disidentifying with the guy, right But what they are doing apparently or we could use sort of a psychological perspective to, to see them doing, is they're identifying with an entire social order. Right? They're identifying with the necessity that this person might be killed. And we might say that this is not necessarily any more or less of a working through of anxiety or pleasure than that other position. But it just does it through a series of disavowals or disidentifications. Right? I, for me, no, I'm not one of those people who thinks the cruelty is the point. I just happen to be a person who understands that the way institutions work means that there has to be some cruelty in them. It, pained, it actually hurts me even more than it hurts the guy who was killed to say that, you know, if we're going to run this subway, if you're going to run this railroad, people have to be disposable for this, right? And, and then we're like, well, what's the pleasure there? Who are they identifying with,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And maybe we could be like, well, if you identify yourself as being the perennial pundit, you never have to worry about getting killed on a train. Right. You're never going to like, when's the last time, like some Iglesias type was like strangled to death on a subway. You know, I'm not saying that he should be right. Please don't hear me saying that. But like the point here is that like people who get to operate in the position where they're constantly pontificating about the necessity that other people are disposable. Mm -hmm. That's you could say is basically a defense mechanism to ensure that, you know, that they can can live their entire life without having to confront the fact that they could be made disposable too.
0: Patrick, I feel like actually a lot of your work is about this idea that you're you're talking about right now about human disposability. Um, and you work on gun violence specifically and you've written extensively about mass shootings in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about the psychoanalytic concepts that have helped you just dis- think about this phenomenon?
1: Yeah, and I think maybe... In order to do that, there's probably like a, a pair of terms that I should we should put on the table as they relate to one another. Yeah,
0: please, and,
1: and then there's also a kind of a, another recurrent psychoanalytic question that keeps coming up. Okay, right? Uh, one of the recurrent psycho—let's do the second one first. Okay, right? One sure. of these one of these recurrent psychoanalytic questions, which you know, Freud more or less raises explicitly, but that also is deployed like more or less verbatim by subsequent thinkers of multiple political orientations. And here I think it's in auto it's in auto gross. There are a lot of autos here, but, but subsequent people too. Those, those are the
0: only autos. Yeah,
1: it's in, it's in France-Fanon. Mm-hmm. It's in a whole much, a lot of people, right? Um, which is the question of like, it's, it's an interesting move and it, it maps onto the move that we've already tracked, which is namely pointing to something as being abnormal in order to then defamiliarize the normal and look at it under a new light, right? Mm-hmm. And the question basically is, why don't more people steal? Right. Why isn't there more social deviance? Right. And no, there are lots of modes of psychology and a lot of like what you might call like one of the key determinants of the discipline or like the, the discipline of power that is called criminology, right? That basically focus on the deviance solely. And like this is where the stuff's really interesting. How people go wrong. Right. But the question that we might ask is like, why isn't there why don't more people cheat on their taxes? Why don't more people Run away, right? Um, like commit various types of fraud, right? Or hell, like I, I'm not. I'm not telling anyone what necessarily to do, right? But you walk into a Whole Foods or a Target, and there's a self checkout thing there, and like that's basically an invitation for you to, at the very least, uh, ring up as regular shitty produce what is actually organic, right? <laughs> So I'm just saying, why don't more people shoplift? And the answer, of course, right, as, as, as psychoanalysts sort of say is, it, and this is, this is in psychoanalysis of multiple ideological stripes, is that clearly people don't just do this only because they're afraid of punishment. Right. Right. The IRS isn't, I mean, again, I'm not telling anyone what to do, but, you know, if tens of millions of Americans, if tens of millions of more Americans were to cheat on their taxes, right, I mean, maybe the IRS couldn't handle all of them, probably not, right? The point here, right, is 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 that you, the question we start asking when we think about things in this perspective, even as a thought exercise, right, if you ask yourself, why didn't I steal from Target? Why don't I steal from Target? Or why don't I steal more, right? <laughs> the answer is like, well, you don't, it, it's not just because you're afraid you're going to get caught. Or if it is, it, that fear of getting caught is more than just a uh a risk calculus vis-a-vis external compulsion. Right. Right. It is in fact a type of internal compulsion or an internalized compulsion. Right.
0: It's just not just like a cost benefit analysis.
1: Exactly. Right. And so it's like I'm worried I'm not the type of person who would mm. steal. Right. Or I feel as guilty about the idea that I might pocket a candy bar from a company that's going to write off hundreds of millions of dollars this year in, you know, what I was call like like shrink. Right. Like the stuff that like our loss prevention or whatever, like basically like tons of stuff gets stolen and that maybe they're run by a manager, like a a, a horrible, maybe this local location is run by a manager who's doing wage theft. And maybe the corporation itself is stealing billions of dollars that it should be putting into the, you know, into the social safety net through like, you know, tax evasion and just sending its its workers uh, to the emergency room whenever they're sick, like. But you might feel just as guilty about the idea of stealing from them, oh, yeah. or where it's covered by insurance, as you would be about stealing from a mom and pop shop or from your friend.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. In other words, there's an because element you
0: don't want to be the kind of person that steals.
1: Exactly, and because you were basically taught to identify with certain types of authorities or with a certain logic that not coincidentally supports certain authorities, to discipline yourself. Yeah. Wow. Like so, a lot of like what seems to be external repression is actually an internal phenomena. Mm-hmm. Right. And this, again, is a question that once you are sensitized to it, it's like that question like, well, why don't we remember everything? Why don't we, why do we forget things that we want to remember versus things that we, you know, remembering things that we'd like to forget. Once you, you, you sort of ask this obvious and basic question, you're like, well, wow, it is kind of wild that a lot of people will spend their entire lives or it's, it's more unthinkable to them that things could change, right. Than that, they could uh, act differently, <laughs> right? Um, You're
0: reminding me of the second book of Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, which I feel like is, I mean, no disrespect to Freud, but I always have felt is like the superior version of civilization and its discontents, where he's like, how do you breed an animal with the right to make promises? And talks about like the health of forgetting. I, it's funny because I-, I It's I, us, by the way. We're we're the we're, animal with the right to make promises. Yeah. It,
1: it, but think about like, like well, I should say Freud basically says this, that like, there's, he, he's willing to, to tolerate the, the possibility of societies that produce so much repression that they shouldn't exist, which is maybe something will go in the end. But like, so this is a quote, not from a psychoanalytic author. This is a quote from C.L.R. James uh, in his amazing book, The Black Jacobins on Toisson Louverture and the Haitian Revolution, mm-hmm. right? And here's the line. When history is written as it ought to be written, it is the moderation and long patience of the masses at which men will wonder, not their ferocity, mm. In other words, it's a question of like, why weren't there even more slave rebellions? And that, you know, we already know that there were many more than than history records. And part of the way that slave owners dealt with this is by erasing the memory and killing the people who did them. But like, why wasn't there even more? Another way of framing this is why didn't people get up and uh kick the shit out of the guy who was strangling Jordan Neely to death on that train? Right? Like, how do people Ascent. What leads people to either self-regulate to the point where they're like, "Well, no, I'm not going to get involved," or to not even perceive the possibility that that's an option, right? To either identify to do some sort of work of identifying who they are or who they'd like to be, or to identify with the social order that they don't perceive that they have agency in these moments, Mm -hmm. right? And that's a question that I think can be put can be put to a lot of use. And that leads us to to reflect on things like, well, what do they get out of this social order? Or what are they afraid of? Or w- what are the anxieties that underwrite their their apparent passivity or consent to these circumstances? And whereas a lot of Marxists might go to, you know, uh, ideological false consciousness critiques or something else like that, we can just be like, well, this has to do with processes of identification, yeah. with the regulation of pleasures, with, a, with an anxieties about what might happen to you if you step out line, et cetera, right? So that's like, a kind of an interesting thing i think we yeah we can think about which is to think about the amount of psychic investment we have into the into the maintenance of normalcy and health and to how that's coordinated and developed but the second the second thing i think to put on the table here before we get to the guns is a, a, a terminological distinction between two sort of ways of thinking about political life right one is this concept of or uh, of political economy right which you know is a a venerable term, oftentimes associated in the present with Marxist criticism, but mm-hmm. that is a uh, is much older than that, you know. And it's it, it emerges, if memory calls, from like Adam Smith, right, and from this era of like the beginning of what we might call economics, right. But, but but for our purposes, let's just simply define political economy as being about the archived, public, measurable outcome of policies and institutions, right of a. Uh, Things of institutions, whether they be formal political institutions, right? Let's say like the U.S. Senate or institutions like uh, private corporations in a given industrial sector, right? Political economy, in other words, is the history of oftentimes uh, of borders, of things that can be mapped, of commodities that can be tracked, or more broadly speaking, stuff that can be numbered, right? Quanta numbers, right? Quantizable things. We can oppose that to something that we would call libidinal economy, yeah. right? And, and libidinal economy is a term, also by way of Marxist psychoanalytic theorists. And Frederick Jameson is one of the people that we could talk about in this in this vein. But for our purposes, we can think about that as being about as being economy in like the uh, the old sense of the term, right? Like oh, like Ben Franklin, Oe Oe economy, Oeconomos, like as a management mm-hmm. of home stuff, right? Yeah, I'm making it's kind from, of an uncanny from OECOS, thing. yes. Yeah, yeah, from like home management, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and that's about a, the regulation or transmission or control or, or, or influence of not overt institutions, not documents or treaties or policies or tar- trade tariffs or any of that stuff, but of feelings, of anxieties, of aggression, of fear, of pleasure, right? And the idea here, and these two th- terms relate to one another, in certain ways is that it's an economy because it, it's a system that has certain principles in which stuff moves around and circulates yeah. and that could be determined if politically speaking, right? But it's not reducible to political economy. And also, and this is another half of it, whereas political economy is about quanta, about numerical things that can be, can be sort of like enumerated or at least in any event, transparently described by reference to public archives, Right, or to archives that you know you can access, or to, to timelines that you can put out. Libidinal economy is is more slippery, and deals with things that are not capable of enumeration, but need description. In other words, it deals what libidinal economy deals in is uh, our qualia right? Mm. Feelings, subjective, dem- sub- subjective stuff like fantasies, anxieties, et cetera. But it postulates that these things operate on a social level and they have a certain systematicity to them.
0: Feelings or feelings and drives.
1: Feelings and drives. I think I, I'm, I'm open enough to, to use yeah. a lot of vocabulary here in this one. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some, I'll give an example about this, right? L- l- yes. So like political economy might be a question. Like we could, we could ask a question like what's the political economy of, uh, the U.S. defense industry, right? Or the U.S. military military industrial complex. And then we might do things like map out uh, the amount of money that gets put in the defense authorization bill mm-hmm. and how that money is tracks to different senators advocating for, you know, companies that are going to build different parts of some plane that's going to get a certain amount of money and produce yet many jobs. And this will to individual donations to their campaigns or to meals at the Capitol Grill or whatever things we want to put a number on, right? And we might observe something like, wow, it's increased every single year, right? And even when the Cold War ended, we kept on defending, we kept on putting more and more money into this, right? And we can do this about police departments too. And maybe we can start talking about the police in a second. like it's, But so that's like a political economic perspective, right? What a libidinal economic perspective would clarify, in contradistinction to that, or go along with that, in
0: addition
1: to, in addition to it, yeah, or in supplement, Mm -hmm. or like we have to do both things at once, right? I'm kind of talking about it ambivalently, working in both these domains. Mm -hmm. Is we would ask a question, some questions like, why exactly do we call investing in our military, which has bases in like a hundred, you know, more odd countries, why do we call that a defense bill, right? Why is like nuclear weapons that like are continually building an arsenal that could turn this world, the entire planet into ashes multiple times over. Why do we call that defense? Why is it a trillion dollars? Even as we sap funding out of other things, why? And here's one, these things that cuts in multiple directions. Why is that a number that keeps on going up and that gets bipartisan support from both parties, regardless of who is in office, Right. Why is it that when it was Donald Trump who was a fascist threat to democracy, that was going un- it was unlike anything that had ever happened in American history and was going to completely undo everything about like the values that we hold dear, and who was a madman, who was going to lead us into God knows war, did a majority of Democrats still sign off on his budget and in fact, increase the amount of funding that he requested for certain military institutions? Those are questions that I think the partisan frame or a narrowly political economic frame, uh, either doesn't want you to ask or can't accommodate your asking. Or in any event, people who operate within that frame are going to be sometimes a little bit, uh, well, you could say, no pun intended, defensive when you start <laughs> thinking about this. And definitely people who like are invested on the level of not, you know, I'm not talking about like people who are shareholders in Northrop Grumman or lobbyists or anything, but just like everyday people are going to be like, well, you know, I'm with the Democrats because they, you know, oppose war, whatever that means right? They or opp- they, they are opposing Trump by giving even more money to Homeland Security, but they're doing it while imposing Trump, right? You can only understand that type of position. As
0: a libidinal investment.
1: As a libidinal investment involving identifications and disidentifications. Yes, I may be writing a check to this fascist, but I disidentify with this fascist, and that's how I can deal with it. And that, I think, is a—that actually— has a lot of utility at looking at the present moment, but also looking at, you know, certain deeper structures, et cetera, right? So I think that that's something I kind of want to like, really want people to sort of sit with, right? Which is namely like, what's up with the libidinal economy of the way in which people who seem to be opponents may well just be occupying different positions in terms of their own identifications, but also in terms of like certain pleasures, uh, how they relate to authority or to the necessity of authority. thing about political and libidinal economy right is that i think that one thing i'm invested in and this is going to segue directly into the gun stuff right is thinking about the political economy stuff alongside the libidinal economy stuff in ways that are involves some degree of ambivalence or are willing to accept a lot of overdetermination and doesn't necessarily require our definitively Mm -hmm. siding with one as being more important or the only way to reason events than the other. Right. So it's because I want to be very clear, like I have materialist commitments and I think, I think it's pretty common sense to think in terms of things like the bottom line, right. When it comes to how a lot of decisions get made, right? right. But one thing you could argue is a traditional project of, or a recurrent bugbear or stumbling block, depending on what meta- pick the metaphor you prefer, for a lot of 20th century leftism is trying to marry political economy with uh, libidinal economy, yeah, right? Or Marx to, and Freud. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think your Alex Colston, our good friend, previous on, on a certain episode, uh, in certain episode number here, mm-hmm. episode four, he has this line about how sort of what is the uh, weakest link in in Marxist political economy. It, namely the sort of the position of the subject is the strongest uh sort of political chain uh link in the chain of of psychoanalysis right mm-hmm. and i think just to say this i think we whether or not our politicians or our elites know this right you can see a lot of the things that we've already talked about namely like these appeals to identify with some things to exclude some things with being identified. Ah, uh, from identification to disidentify, appeals to pleasure, whether direct or unmitigated, or the uh, the pleasure of a type of like renunciation of pleasure. We you can read a lot of those things as deliberately mystifying the intersection of liberal economy and political economy. Interesting, right? Or as swapping from one to the other, right? And and here I'm not saying anything necessarily that like a, a figure like oh I don't know like W. D. Du Bois or um. Uh, like MLK would say, right? Like one of the definitions of what you know of what Jim Crow is, right? The old MLK line, if I think I'm getting it right, is like it's a substitute. Jim Crow is what the is what the poor white can eat as a substitute for like other types of social satisfaction, right? Um, it, it's it's like the meal that you get instead of actual political uplift. Well, at least I'm not that category of people who I revile, right? And I, I have to admit, I'm thinking about this a lot with debates over. What seems to me to be a term of, of of libidinal economy par excellence, but that is sort of fictionalized into behaving as though it were a political economic term, right? Which is like this idea of legitimacy, mm. right? Yeah. And I, or this thing called legitimacy, which, which at this point in American political life seems to be like, it's like clapping for Tinkerbell or like, it's like <laughs> evoking, it's like invoking like the, like the force or like the mana levels of institutions, and it involves both, like, ignoring what's obvious about political economy and ignoring the obvious role of libidinal economy at the same time, right? Wow. And I'll just—the example that's really kind of giving me an ulcer for the past couple of days alongside the Jordan Neely thing, right, is, like, think about people being, like, people saying with 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 a straight face as though this were an actual— Thing and no, again, this is stuff that people are saying that in no way is the equivalent to making an argument about the points. This is functional. This is about encouraging people to identify and disidentify. Right
0: Back people, to logic. Yeah, exactly. Right. Being and like,
1: that. well, look, yes, Clarence Thomas has received, has directly received money or, or cash value gifts, and yes, money has been funneled to his wife, to his mother, uh, to institutions that he favors. Uh, like building a statue of some nun that educated him and who he was very fond of to this person who is adopted son, right? Basically everyone within either the tight nuclear family unit or to the people around him and to the institutions that he identifies with. Yes. Absurd amounts of money have been given to those things by conservative billionaires who brought business before the court. Uh, but have you considered that you are actually diminishing the legitimacy of the court by suggesting that he wouldn't have voted the same way anyways, even if he hadn't gotten those bribes. And please, even calling them bribes, don't you know other people are also achieving it? You really need to move on and grow up. So note the complicated (laughs) levels of things here where it's like, who are you to question this person? Like, legitimacy is this thing that somehow, like, if you say just a little bit more, those legitimacy levels are going to hit critical dropping levels, right? Or it's like, if you actually say that, and this is, you know, Mutonis, Mutonis, we could probably code a lot of the really, really stupid discussions of fascism that have happened or the terminology of fascism in a similar way where it's like, if if this actually is fascism, then our talking about it is going to be inadequate, right? And thus you have these kind of like remarkable norming sort of gestures where it's like, well, actually the real fascists are the people who talk about fascism not the people who self-identify as fascists or the people who were basically doing fascist things, but by simply bringing this out into the open, you're endangering critical levels of our all like pretending to buy into legit- this legitimacy of this thing or like it- the-, the limits of our political order, right?
0: So, so you're yeah. you're bringing, I mean, you're tacitly bringing in things like projection and disavow, like that. that's what you're looking for, right, in yeah. some way. I
1: think one way- How these
0: f- things operate
1: Absolutely. in
0: contemporary political discourse, however you want to- co- you know I think one understand way understand that
1: one one the thing that I think Freudian psychoanalysis gives us but that other psychoanalytic theories also give us right is whereas other theories of and here I think of classical psychology or certain types of social psychology etc where there's a hard and fast be- distinction between individuals and groups yeah uh, and groups are depending on how you want to slice it like behave like single individuals or are just the sum of a whole lot of individuals um is Freud problematizes both the individual and the group by splitting them up, right? Right. Well, I mean and, this is what
0: I would call intersubjectivity.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's perfectly that 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 works perfectly. That Dallgas uh, so to speak, right? But but also and at the same time I think what we can think about here are the ways in which like what is constituted as the political or what people think to be like the horizon of political Thinkability, or like what can be named, yeah. requires an ongoing expenditure of effort.
0: Okay.
1: Right. And a policing, like c- correlative to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And at that point, a lot of what seem to be political distances are really just like dialectical positions within mm-hmm. the ma- that are all invested in maintaining the boundaries of that. Right. So this is now where we can, I think, we can really get into the gun situation. Right. Uh, because, like, if you were to look just in terms of political economy, you would see some very basic things about uh, the U.S. that are are very striking, right? Sure. Namely, that we, we have more guns than people, right? right? Um, by a lot. By a lot. Uh, that the, the gun ownership is clustered in people with certain politics, but also is expanding outside it. Um, and also, too, you might make, make certain sort of observations that are just, like, prima facie obvious, namely that uh, the legislation of guns— uh, even before we have this concept of quote unquote gun control but which is a term of art right that's a term that also comes to stand in for other things but like even if we before we before people use the phrase gun control and we start actually like tracking laws that are about guns in this country they're all about race and gender right they're all about uh in, and specifically all about like ensuring the the social reproduction of things like the settler family yeah. uh pr- protecting the prerogative of uh, people to extract value or, or compel labor or extract value from labor, depending on how you want to formulate that. Um, and that requires, you know, that work of just like straight political economy, right, of of tracking the ever-mouthing numbers of guns in this country or tracking the, the basic data about things like, and, you know, I, I suppose we could put a lot of, so to speak, trigger warnings here, talk about some overdetermined shit, but like, the fact that like in any given year that like the majority of the planet's suicides by gun are going to happen in this country and they're going to be white men of a certain age Mm. right um or even other things that i think are probably worth bringing into bear here namely that uh some other factoids like you know like in addition to being having more guns than people we also make and export and import more guns than any other country on the planet and we make And export more arms in general far away than any other country on the planet, Mm -hmm. right? But, so that's like the political economy thing where it's like straightforwardly, we are exceptional in these metric ways, right? In these ways that can be- measurable. Measurable ways. Mm -hmm. In numbers of guns, numbers of guns per capita, uh, gun homicide rates, all this type of stuff, right? So like that's a very striking thing in and of itself. But, and here's where the libidinal economy comes into this, what's very striking about our discourse about guns is a lot of mystification of that and investment in other types of exceptionalism, right? So think here, and here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean to the critique of certain liberal voices, right? Because sure. you will have people say things like, we are better than this. Who is this we, right? How long has this we been better than this? Because like the last time I checked, again, this country has been flooded with ever more guns and we've been at war, variously undeclared or not, for the majority of our existence, right? So you have to ask this question, like, so we're the world's jailer. We are the world's, like, armorer, more or less, at least by metrics. Uh, and in addition to having more, and I really want to lean to the, the jailer-prison connection here for a second. Sure. Because, like, in addition to having more guns, both per capita and... In toto than any other nation on the planet. We also have more people in prison, in carceral control per capita and in toto than any other nation on the planet. And, and yet we're still hung up in this way that seems almost childlike on our being exceptional because actually we're better than this. In other words, there's this complicated series of of invocations, uh, constitu- uh, like const- constitutive rather than constitutional sort of turns here or, or like gestures that are about naming us as being well, we're being asked to identify with something that we aren't, right? We're both asked to identify with certain aspects of ourselves and disidentify with other aspects of ourselves. And I think the moment you look at, you start thinking in those terms, you see two things. One, you see how many of the, what are taken to be self-evident features of the quote-unquote debate over guns are uh, really about constituting, that, or preserving that exceptionality, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or that exceptionalism. Right. Right down to the point where people will even like I'm thinking of this, this is the Clinton campaign did this a ton. Uh, it's something you'll still see sometimes where it's like the U.S. will be you'll see a graph of U.S. gun violence against other, quote unquote, OECD countries, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development stuff. But Mexico is excluded because of, quote unquote, the drug war. Right. And you're like, what, what what's up with us in this settler colonial North American country where we are comparing ourselves and who we should be to Japan and the Scandi countries, as opposed to the other OECD net member who is literally shares a border with us and which gets hundreds of thousands of guns illegally smuggled into it by us every year, and where a lot of those guns are paid for by drugs that we consume. And yet, people will literally, on the level of political economic graphics, on the way they report numerical data, exclude that by reference to some sort of gesture that is like, well, they're not us. We don't, they're not in our benchmark. Right. In other and this is another thing I kind of want to say here, right? Or rather, it builds into the second thing I kind of want to say here. A lot of what the gun debate really is, right? It, and I real and I'm calling it a debate in a, in a short in shorthand, is it isn't really a debate at all. It's a whole series of rhetorical moves that are about credentializing and decredentializing, about constituting who that us is and disavowing other members as being a part of that us. Right. Uh Another example here that I think is fairly helpful, and this is another one that I just hate, but it's one that apparently people of uh, liberals in particular are wedded to. These weapons of war have no place on our streets. Okay, great, you've said that. You, people say that over and over again. And the question is: one, what does it mean to talk about weapons of war in a country, and how they don't belong in a country that's been at war for the majority of its existence, like the overwhelming majority of existence? Two. If they're not okay on our streets, whose streets are they okay on? And does the fact that we are so committed to only talking about how they don't belong on our streets, does that maybe track to, well, you know, our role as the armorer to the world and the fact that we export these weapons in that particular pattern, both for sale, but also as a, quote unquote like grants to foreign powers, but also that they're being carried everywhere by our troops, Right. And think here about the credentializing gesture that's made sometimes in the wake of a mass shooting where people will be like, this has never happened before in the US. This is unlike anything else. Our innocence, like our innocence is finally being lost or these, people, these victims are too good, too special, like, like whatever. This, this is a bridge too far.
0: Like after Sandy Hook.
1: After Sandy Hook. That's the one that's the people like after, again, you'll see that tweet that goes viral. I realized that after Sandy Hook, we decided, that's when we decided that we would do nothing. Or that was when we decided that there was no crop of dead kids that was going to be innocent enough to, to produce things. And, and again, like, without psychoanalyzing or putting on an armchair, like, why an individual person would say this, you will know, like, who's the we making this decision, right? And, you know, what does it mean that in the year of our Lord <laughs> 2012 or 2015, reflecting back on 2012, People in a country where members of our "quote unquote" founding fathers talk about a, a psychoanalytically like mm-hmm. pregnant term, like we're an entire nation with fucking daddy issues, right? Other other countries don't have founding fathers, folks. It's a that's something maybe worth saying here, right? There is no like George Washington of like Estonia, right? <laughs> like, like, and, and and Estonian politics are not continually being like regulated by reference to what a bunch of people like like what a bunch of guys in the 1700s had to say right or like their purity of intentions but but independently entirely of that what exactly does it mean to say that we americans gave up on protecting children in the year 2012 when some of our founding fathers literally sold their own children who they had by slaves into slavery what work is being done by this? And the answer is, well, it's a whole series of identifications and disidentifications. The better to uh, either temporarily produce some sort of political movement on the problem or, as the historical record would suggest, basically to perpetuate an ongoing state of affairs. So, so yeah. And, and sometimes, I should say, the mask slips, right? I remember there's a, a couple of a couple of years ago in the wake of one particular mass shooting, I think it was a, 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 Congra- a Democratic congressman tweeted something about how, well, if if you really want to use an assault rifle, why don't you go serve for your country in Afghanistan? Where it's like, okay, that's, that's the...
0: Yes, they say it out loud.
1: Yeah, they say it out loud. But in truth, like if there's any one thing the gun bait, the gun quote unquote debate is, is it's a lot of mystifications around stuff like race or about not recognizing who we actually are. Mm. The better to get us to either, you know, best-case scenario, make some small changes around the edges of, of, of this rolling thunder nightmare that we call a country, um, or more often, get people to donate to either the 501c3 that is the NRA or whatever its current status is, or to the Democratic Party, right, to fight the NRA, right? And this is another point I think it's worth saying here. Like, I, I want to bring it back to Jordan Neely again, right? What does it mean when, and how old is Joe Biden now? 74, 75?
0: No, way older than that. Oh,
1: great. Yeah.
0: The whole deal is he's going to be like 80.
1: Cool. Cool. But, but what does it mean that our soon to be octogenarian president who was an architect of both the 1994 crime bill and the uh, gun control sort of legislation that accompanied that, the assault weapons ban, uh, which was a failure in many different ways of, of, of understanding that and this thing we talk about some other time, right? What does it mean when he says, now is finally the time to act on this. We need new solutions. And then he produces the same old solutions that he always had. And everyone's like, this is a really inspirational thing that Uncle Joe is doing. Again, that's the, this impression of newness, this uh, insistence that the same old thing and doubling down on the same old thing is going to yield different results, mm-hmm. right? You might describe that, you know, one you know, neat little definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results. But what you might also describe as basically an American kind of repetition compulsion, right, is doubling down on the same solutions, which are actually just a species of the problem. And to really just tightly wind this up. Yeah.
0: Because you're taking us to the death drive. Yeah, you? exactly. Good, because I have a question
1: about that. What does it mean when people are like, wow, this, this, it, if there's, it's simply, uh, note here, like what's being protected in in this, this term legitimacy is going to come up again. Like, It's simply terrifying that things have gotten so far that a black man can be murdered publicly in the Northeast, right? In the Northeast, my goodness. It's it's not like any lynchings ever happened there, which is not true. But like in the Northeast can be publicly murdered. Um, That's just terrible that a civilian would do that. Why didn't they call the police? Why don't we have more police on the MTA? In other words, let's disident, or even we'll ask questions like, well, people were really upset because Jordan Neely might've had a gun. At which point my answer is like, again, motherfucker, like the people who I know who are always like, why aren't you carrying a gun when you go back to New York, even though it's illegal? Or how could you possibly live in New York without a gun? The people who ask that universally look like the man who strangled Jordan Neely. They do not look like Jordan Neely himself, but somehow we're going to worry that it was Jordan Neely who had the gun, right? Um, Who could have had a gun. Like it's an no,
0: intellectual sleight of hand.
1: It is, it, but also sometimes it seems to be it's like a sleight of hand done by someone who doesn't even know that no, they're doing conscious. a cartridge. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's, it's like it, uh,
1: yeah. No, 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 no. It, it, it's a dis. It's a, it's, a, it's some complex thing of identification, disidentification, mm-hmm. right? And it also involves a, a, a an invocation of certain things as being non-negotiable, right? Here, the real. You might even think that the real scandal is not that a bunch of. People committed what you could argue is another lynching in a country with a, a very robust history of lynching, but that they didn't let the proper authorities legitimately kill the guy. And if, they ha- and if those proper authorities had killed that guy, you better believe we'd be having a conversation about how, well, we need to reinvest in policing despite the bad apples and despite the fact that it keeps doing the same thing over and over again.
0: I think you're bringing us to, and I think you even just invoked a few minutes ago, the idea of repetition compulsion, which is something that comes up for Freud in, is it 1920, Beyond the Pleasure Principle? Yeah. I think it's, it's 1920, 20s. maybe 21, 22. Um, but I mean, one thing that you've written about at length in in the past few years, particularly is the concept of the death drive, which is something that Freud theorizes in Beyond the Pleasure Principle um, in the wake of observing um, what he calls the compulsion to repeat in traumatized soldiers. Um, and and the death drive, I should, I should say, um, is a pretty controversial idea, even within psychoanalytic circles, like since Freud first trotted it out. I mean, I feel like only the Kleinians really took it up in a full-throated way, and and that most post-Freudian psychoanalytic schools like really didn't want anything to do with it. Talk about disavowal, logics of disavowal, right? Can you tell us a little bit? about how you understand the death drive and particularly why you find it so useful to think with?
1: I I think, like, look, one thing I'll say just right up front about this is that this term, the death drive, is less a singular monolithic thing, even for Freud, than it is a series of related problems um, that are brought in relation to one another, right? Or that are brought into kind of creative... Parallel or juxtaposition, right? So a lot of what's at stake in the Death Drive, and I'm sure we'll do subsequent episodes about the Death Drive proper, right? Is our, our questions of calendar. like, yeah, our questions of like, how is or, or here's the here are the ingredients that are like put up there like a constellation. And constellation is kind of a helpful metaphor because a constellation we see in the sky and it helps us navigate on the land, right? So so what the Death Drive is is it's a bunch of related concepts that are kind of put together. In a way that may help us navigate through or perceive possibilities elsewhere better, and those concepts or terms that are put in relation to one another include but are not limited to the the maintenance of boundaries and their creation of inside and outside and the policing of that mm. uh, the way in which entropy or like the the collapse or breakdown of something is related to the conditions under which the thing is brought into being how origins relate to End or terminal stuff um, about the pleasures of repetition. Why is it pleasurable to repeat things over and over again? Both in its own right, as you know, a lot of kids really like repetition. If you ever read a kid a bedtime story over and over again, like mm-hmm. rep- they really like repetition. But also, why how, why are, why can we be attached to repetitions of things um, that are bad for us?
0: I think most people know the the death drive if if like in passing in that context in in the context of traumatic repetition or traumatic reenactment
1: and that's why freud calls the book beyond the pleasure principle right because like this is the absolute like one way of one question you can ask and we talked about this a while back in terms of dreams right in the freudian account dreams exist to keep you asleep right and they're supposed to fulfill your wishes without waking you up right they follow pleasure principle in the sense that it's a wish fulfillment and also you get the rest you need but if you're traumatized in this way of looking at it You will have dreams that don't disguise stuff that happened to you that's traumatic, um, in which horrible things happen to you that you couldn't possibly actively want or say that you wanted, and you're going to wake up screaming every single time, right? So, in other words, how do we revise, and Freud really did have to revise his entire theories, how do we produce a vision of the person, but also the vision of uh, other types of relationships or other types of uh, social formations? In other words, complex stuff, right? to the fact that uh, how do we relate that or how do we revise our vision of how things are built up in relation to the way in which they sometimes seem to be compelled to fall apart or seem to be attached to their own conditions of suffering, right? This is another way, without reducing the moral, in moral equivalence, the example of like, well, why weren't there more slave results, revolts than there even were? Or why do people, it, without reducing that, that question or the moral positions of people into it, you could ask a question like, well, why are people who know that the presence of a gun in their home may become a, it may be just a suicide tool, right? Or it may, it may be used accidentally by their kids. Why, do, If they're aware of that actuarially, why do they still want the gun there? And why yeah. do they perceive that as being something that they affirmatively choose over and against the statistical element, like the statistical like aspect of it. And a lot of those, in other words, like what's up with, and this is why I'm invested in the death drive as like a concept is that it really points to one of those circumstances In this particular country, with all its sort of fantasies of exceptionalism and the hard empirical reality of what it's actually exceptional about, Mm. it points to one of those ways in which the liberal economic and the political economic kind of interrelate and converge, right? Because there obviously is a political economic story about guns that we could tell. And it's one that, you know, know, there are times I'd be very happy to talk about, but like, again, hundreds of millions of guns, tens of thousands of gun deaths a year, combined with insistences on our national innocence, um, demands that solutions fix everything, the demand for a silver bullet thing, uh, all sorts of taboos and pieties about what can be said and can't be said, and uh, a weird type of resignation where it seems like the only thing that we'll ever be able to do about the issue is the thing we've always done before, right up to the point that, again, our octogenarian president, our soon-to-be octogenarian president, is literally proposing the same policies that he did in 1994, and that he pursued for decades before that, sure. as though it's new, right? So this continual doubling down on basically tools that kill people, that are designed to kill people, this doubling down on death as though there were no alternative. one way you can understand that is as a situation of individuals, but also of a collectivity, being attached to repetition and only understanding its agency or what constitutes the political as a doubling down on status quo conditions that also have history and they're probably rooted in trauma. What I'm getting at, at the end of the, at the end of the day here, and it's hard to think of a more neatly encapsulated death drive, sort of like nugget than what is oftentimes presented as a affirmative statement of political defiance. Namely, you could only take these guns from me from my cold dead hands to read that in addition, I think we could probably read that in terms of castration anxiety. And, you know, there's a, it's not a coincidence that a lot of the people who say that are also really big into images of Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton. In other words, of all these sort of like phallic castrating mothers who are coming to take your guns from you and et cetera. Right. But like, what's up with, what if we read that like pledge from my cold dead's hands? It's not like a, I'm going to hold up against the feds and protect my family when you, when the jackboots come and kick down my door. But what if we hear that as both expressing symptomatically and also empirically producing this outcome, or at least vouchsafing or the continuing outcome of, of circumstances where basically saying that you can only take my guns out of my cold, dead hands as a suicide vow, where it's like this is what a person also says right before they kill their own family and, and themselves and set fire to their house, right? And at that point, well,
0: Break your toys and go
1: home. Exactly. I'm thinking of the work of Jonathan Metzl, right, psychoanalyst, sociologist, about this stuff where he does some empirical and psychoanalytically informed stuff about, like, uh, we specifically focused on Missouri, but like, you can make the case that a lot of people in the wake of the Ferguson uprising uh, changed their political system. Like, they made real political economic changes, right? They produced changes to the waiting periods for uh, how long a person could get a gun, right? You know, or, or like other like permission to carry requirements, et cetera. And those, uh, outcomes, right, which were driven by fear of urban revolt coming out to their cul de sac suburban communities, resulted in those communities having even more guns. And there was a correlative uptick in gun suicide, in gun related domestic violence, et cetera. So here's a situation in which people's investment in fantasies about who they are as the protector, as the good guy, actually produce circumstances where the good guy gets to become the bad guy at the point at which, like, you know, there are more guns around, there are more desperation and there are more opportunities that people have just, you know, kill themselves and kill their families or go take a gun to work, etc. In other words, like, I think like people can get hung up on like the perversity of the death drive as a concept, but like, to be very blunt about it, a lot of what seems self-evident conceptually or that like passes for arguments in the quote unquote gun debate are really just lusty affirmations of the death drive, Mm. whether it be in the direct, very right-wing mode of, at the end of the day, when society fails, I will be there with a gun to resist the outsider coming into my house, penetrating my home and doing sexual violence against the people I love and unmanning me, right? Or it's the liberal mode of, I want nothing to do to do with guns. Guns are evil. And I just want to have a person who has a gun on their hip and a badge show up and deal with the people who don't belong in my neighborhood or subway car. And if they kill people, that's really unfortunate. But you know, like the idea, you got to have somebody like that. Like if you're going to abolish the police, like you need to have, who are going to be the cops once you abolish the cops, huh? Smart guy, right? Either way, it's a direct owning of identification with pleasure and violence, or it's a type of like sublimated, which is to say slightly transformed Uh, narcissistically kind of like self-congratulatory identification with the necessity of the process. But in both cases, both those outcomes, whether it's going to be a ton of police with guns to deal with social neglect and abandonment and violence, or it's going to be a lot of individuals with guns, many of whom happen to also be cops, uh, you know, wielding their guns to do whatever they want. um, In both those cases are entirely compatible with one another. I would argue historically they certainly have been and are very much what you would probably expect in a country or rather in what you might call an entire North American milieu where the production and circulation of guns is the number one priority over and against people's lives.
0: This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken.